Welcome to the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives, a podcast by Noibu, where we explore the elite strategies and cutting edge insights with our expert guests. Get ready to propel your e-commerce business to the next level. Welcome everybody to the e-commerce toolbox, Experts Perspective. Joining us today, we have someone with over 15 years of experience in operations as an architect and in e-commerce. Joining us is Jim Paris, who's currently a e-commerce architect at Zorro US. Welcome, Jim. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Galen. So Jim, you've worked at various different impressive companies from Office Max to Ticketmaster, now at Zorro. Maybe walk us through a bit about your journey and uh, how you ended up in your current role. I could say that like probably a common path for architects is to come up through software engineering, but uh, I actually came up through desktop support and then data centers and then operations. And then I had software engineering thrust upon me. But operations was a pretty good place to start off in architecture because it is another place where you are involved in everything that's going on. And so it's easy for you to like see the whole landscape and put pieces together. was uh, unconventional, but I think like a very helpful path into architecture. That makes sense. I think it's always really important to have kind of different backgrounds when it comes to building teams. So if you have everyone come through the software engineer side, they might be missing kind of the forest through the trees sometimes. So building on that, you've had various different roles. So whether it's in an architect role or a previous role that you've held, do you want to maybe talk about some of the most significant projects that you've led? Anything that maybe addressed some like key corporate initiative, but I'm super curious, some of the projects that you've worked on that you're most proud of? It's a long list, but easily at the top of the list. One of the companies had a presence in Europe and in the United States. And the platform in the United States was mostly homegrown or very customized. So to make any change, it was a long process to get a change. And meanwhile, in Europe, they're doing things like, hey, they just changed the tax laws in France. We need a feature fix, you know, and okay, we'll get it to you in six months. So that wasn't working out for anyone. The Americans' backlog was filling up with stuff that didn't affect their bottom line, and Europeans had no support. So they declared independence from the U.S., and they nabbed a couple of folks, and I was one of them, to go over there and start an Office of Digital Innovation in England. And so we kind of started from scratch. We have this ERP that we need to put the orders in, but everything up until then is Greenfield. How do we do this? And so we built middleware. We pulled in like MuleSoft, I believe. We chose a platform that we could replicate out to multiple countries and multiple languages very quickly, which at the time was Hybris. We did that while building out an office. And it was fun because I got to be so many different roles because we started just with like a handful of people. So I was the director of security until I could hire my replacement. And thank goodness, someone else can do that. I built a, a DevOps team and led that until I was able to hire a manager and do that and just repeat, repeat, repeat. So until I finally got to be just an architect again. That's awesome. And I mean, architect means different things in different roles or in different organizations rather. But I feel like in the context of e-commerce, I personally even seen the wrong platform or partner decisions takes years to unravel, implement the wrong CRM, implement the wrong uh, ERP. Like that is a decision that haunts you for years and some cases decades. So when it comes to architecting the perfect client experience, How do you look at that? Like in your role, like how do you think the software and the partners and the technology decisions that you so carefully curate 
kind of drives back to the customer environment and how the customer interacts with the website. That's kind of a two-parter. I'll start with the second part. Like, how does this impact like the customers? Every choice you make will end up on someone's screen somehow or in their experience, right? Even in choosing a shipping provider that is going to be their whole experience and like getting a package. That is also customer experience, not website, but it's like part of it, right? So all of those decisions like do have impact. So the question is like, how do you know what that impact is? You have to have a, not a habit, you have to have a discipline of watching and listening and knowing what to do with that data. Even if you make all of the right choices now, things change, people change, industries change. Two years from now, five years from now, it's not a good decision anymore. <laughs> but how do you know it's not a good decision? Are you gonna wait till sales drop? Or are you gonna like be constantly watching like, hey, people aren't engaging with this. This thing that was great for like a year is not working, why? Let's find out, let's dive in. Yeah, so like kind of how do you plan for that? So like following from that, I understand that any decision I make I am making it to get implemented now, to be in front of the customer and be benefiting them now. But I have to understand that like in two years from now, it might not be the right decision anymore. So I always have exit strategies built into the plan. Like I might not even be at the company anymore, I don't know, but it has to be built into the plan so that, hey, the search tool that we just bought, that was great, it was so much better than what we had, but now everyone is using this new facet thing and they don't support it. So we have to migrate to that. How do we do that? Well, luckily the way we integrated with it in the first place was abstracted easily enough for us to move to another one or build our own fairly easily, right? So you always make sure that you're, uh, you know where the, on the off ramps are before you get on the highway. <laughs> that actually makes a lot of sense. And I feel like it's one of those situations where if you don't think of that, you go, oh, I'll have to take out the search. And because I take out the search, I have to take out the chat and then, oh, the chat's linked back to this thing. And then it, it basically, it turns into like redoing everything, which is chaotic. So that's really good. And I think those are things that are potentially underappreciated until they then become the most important thing in the business, which is, oh my God, our license is expiring in 90 days or sunsetting XYZ tool. The way it was integrated is basically critical to everything else. And now we have to rewrite our whole cart page because it's dependent on it. I'm fully aligned on that. You'd mentioned earlier DevOps and leading into kind of your architect role as well as when it comes to dealing with software bugs and error detection and things like that, especially when you're in the e-com space, which is effectively vendor selection a lot of the times, and then custom work to make it all piece together. How are you thinking about from an architect standpoint, dealing with kind of quality and software bugs and things like that? So my philosophy with monitoring is you have to know why you're looking at what you're looking at. So in the case of a blog, you want like views and you want people to scroll and you want interaction, you want people to see those banners, right? You want people to come back. You want that name to be spread around. You want people to link it, right? So those are your, like your metrics for success. For e-commerce, you want people to be like browsing the products or finding them from Google. You want them interacting, reading them, clicking them, buying and coming back next time they need something else. Right. So those are your metrics for success. If you have logs full of errors, but it doesn't impact the customer, you don't need to waste time like over indexing and figuring out why that's happening. Right. Should they even be errors? No, they should be like warnings or what you black hole them. Like have a habit of like making a ticket for unimportant things just to document that you saw it and close it, not impacting. So, but you have to know why it's not impacting. And so everyone, like not just, you know, some bean counters over in finance, but like, Everybody in the company needs to know like why you're doing this. Like, why are we here? And so I always encourage people to roll business metrics into your technology metrics, right? It's not just how many stack traces did this service spit out? 
or how many times did people encounter this JavaScript error? Is our add to cart ratio today the same as it was last Thursday? You know, how's our revenue doing? Because if it dips, that's the alert right there is when your revenue dips. Especially today when we've got these pods running, it's very robust. You can have nine out of 10, you know, pods of a cart or order service or whatever, just completely crapping the bed and waking everyone up at three in the morning. But if your revenue is not impacted, you've got that one pod sitting up there. It's fine, right? You build it that way on purpose. I think we've definitely come a long way. I mean, we used to get on 100-person bridge calls and yell at each other over a single error that no one knew the impact of. And that's just a bad way to do it. You should really completely look at it from the other side of the street, in my opinion. I think you're right in the sense where e-commerce is very unique in which there's a single defined goal, which is conversion for most websites. And to your point, impact in terms of should be measured more towards sales versus occurrence. Because most of those, to your point, are some JavaScript error that fires in the console somewhere that doesn't even do anything. Like it's actually a black hole as to what it does, but it doesn't block revenue. So why are we talking about it? So that's interesting. And, and building on your theme of being data-driven, maybe share some of your insights in terms of how you've leveraged data to make decisions uh, in the past, whether that's choosing a search whether that's platforming or site speed. Curious, how are you leveraging data and analytics to kind of make sure that you're making the right decisions? That's a big topic. Let's see, where do I want to start biting on this? This is my favorite evangelical story for when I'm preaching the gospel of data. Instincts are bad and we are not our customers. Our customers are other people doing their own thing. And so when you're building your very first features, like I would like a website that does this and I would like to do this, great, do that. But once you're up and running, you need to start watching what your customers are actually doing. And the proof of that is my favorite story is when I was wrong. So my bugaboo is I hate pop-ups. I hate being interrupted. I'm on a website to buy a thing. Leave me alone, <laughs> right? And so I tend to err on the side of like, don't pop up stuff on me. And so when I was with one company and they're like, we want more data, good. We want to know what our customers think, me too. So we're going to put up like a bunch of surveys that pop up in their face and be like, how's it going? What are you doing? And I was like, oh God, please don't do that. <laughs> so annoying. But I don't have any data to back up that assertion. That's just my like opinion, man. So that's why MVTs, multivariant tests, that's why AB tests exist, right? So everything you do, even if it's little, like it increases dev hours. It's like more work. There's more business process, but you should always have a discipline of testing what you do. And so we rolled out the surveys and guess what? People love surveys. They just stopped what they were doing. They talked to us, complained about everything that was wrong. Good. Told us what was right. Thanks. And then it did not impact conversion. There was no impact on exit rates. And yeah, I was totally wrong. We got a lot of great data. Have your hypothesis, be ready to prove it. Have an infrastructure and a discipline for doing that. We internally laugh about sometimes you meet people and to your point, like they have an opinion, but they really start driving that in as if it's like backed by a thousand person survey. And we call those people that operate uh, on a gut basis. So gut-based operators. And I think to your point, you want to be a, a data-based operators. I love that. You mentioned infrastructure. I feel like a lot of companies utopically talk about doing what you just mentioned. How did you build an infrastructure to be able to actually support that without creating a lot of overhead? Well, some overhead will happen, right? Like, so nothing is free, 
right? So either you have a lot of complexity, sort of like on the DevOps side, like infrastructure of code. Someone says like, that sounds easy. No, it's not. It's like, it's hard. It's harder than actual infrastructure. I'll babysit something in a data center. It's fine. But like infrastructure as code is hard, but it's hard because, you know, you're buying something valuable and the thing you're buying is stability for your customers, the ability to roll out stuff really fast and all that. So it's just like microservices. People like to say, oh, microservices are so great. No, they're a hassle. They're awful. It's constant work, but it's worth it if that's the right thing to do for your company. So yeah, DevOps and these sorts of disciplines and like cloud infrastructure, it's the same thing. Like if it works with your budget, if you can scale it, if you're always watching, you got to watch those dollars because they fly quick if you're not paying attention, right? But if you have the resources and the time and the people, and the, the, then it's, yeah, it's worth it. But if you're short on those things, then it might not be. So I'll always do the cost benefit analysis. Don't follow up on a hype. It is nice that like a bunch of, you know, our services can go down and we keep making money, but the money we make has to be worth it, right? In our case, it is, but it's not always going to be. So you got to do that cost benefit analysis. I'm fully aligned. You'd mentioned a few other teams. You've mentioned DevOps, you mentioned engineering. As an architect, you have to collaborate with a lot of teams to kind of get buy-in. Like at the end of the day, if you're selecting a, a marketing tool, the marketing team probably is going to want to have some sort of say in it, right? Even if maybe it has an extra feature, but it will take six months longer to implement. How have you been able to collaborate cross-functionally? And what are some of your kind of tools and tricks for people in similar positions that need to move fast, but also kind of seek alignment cross-functionally where maybe some of these things could be at odds, where the better tool takes longer to implement? I've definitely implemented stuff that I advised against, right? So it doesn't always work. But like I said, you always have an exit ramp. And if you can identify sort of like where the danger curves, like, hey, when this happens, we're going to have to do this. And when this happens, we're going to have to do this. And like, that's documented. Then flash forward a year and a half when it happens, you're like, that's cool. We have a plan for that. Boof, boof, boof. So kind of working backwards from your question, when you're an architect, you don't decide the destination, right? You're just drawing out the route. You're drawing it out spatially, like boxes and arrows with crayons and stuff, or you're drawing it out in time. Like we do this this year. If we do this this year, then we can do this next year and then do this year. But ultimately, not up to you. Cross-functional work is like really important. When I went to college, I did not study computers, right? Because I already, I had been doing computers for a living since I was like 16. I was like, I don't want to go study that. And so I studied uh, anthropology. And so for me, working with the business is ethnography. It is like participant observation. It's like, hey, I feel like what you're saying is this. And I was talking to pricing team. Marketing team wants this loyalty product and pricing team wants to give special pricing to our loyal customers. That sounds like the same sort of initiative. You guys should go talk to each other and then I'll, we'll start all that again. I prefer to push people to offering business requirements. What do you want to do now? Where do you want to be in five years? Like that's my favorite two questions. What, do you, what are we doing right now? Where do you want to be in five years? And it drives people crazy because they're like, we just want to fix this problem. Cool. What do you want to be in five years? Because how to fix the problem, I don't want to block that or make that harder. And so unless that's documented somewhere, I'm going to ask the question every time. And by doing that, I can get, I can get people to think about like long-term strategy. And then we can say like, okay, well, we'll onboard this product right now because it does the things we want right now. In two years, we can switch over to this other thing. And then we build our own. Like, we don't know. We're, we would love to. And another strategy I have is get to know a lot of people in the departments, like be social, which is hard for me because I'm not actually as outgoing as I pretend to be. And so for me, like, you know, chatting people up and getting their, their opinions on stuff is like part of my job. 
But thankfully, I love to hear people like nerd out about stuff they're passionate about, which is usually their work. And I will find people who they don't have to be the manager or the director or anything, but I will find resources. And those are like, because they're like partners in, you know, anthropology. They're like my go-to person, right? To get a bead on like, what's the culture here in the pricing department? How are you guys feeling? How's that tool working out for you? What would you really like? Because not only can they give me a heads up way in advance of where we're going to go soon, but also I can do a little like worm tongue if I need to like push them in a direction a little bit. Like, hey, you know what? If you had this tool, this other thing would be easier. And then, ah, oh, here's a link. And then, you know, six months later, I'll hear from their boss's boss's boss. Hey, we have this great idea for a tool. Like, really? That's fascinating. <laughs> no, I, I love that. I, I know uh, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I think I've seen that always kind of play itself out where you kind of plant some seeds and then it comes back as somebody else's idea. And you're like, perfect. To your point, it maps to the business outcome that that you think is best for the business. So Jim, honestly, this has been amazing so far. As, as I look to end off, I have one question I always like to ask. If you could pick one thing that a lot of brands are doing in e-com that they should probably stop, in your opinion, what would that be? Let me pick a controversial one. Short-term planning. And to be more specific, over-indexing on being competitive with pricing. So you should have some items that you're competitive in pricing in because that's the system. You're going to show up on Google. You're going to show up on whatever. You have to do it. It's the business we're in. But that shouldn't be your business strategy, right? Because for one thing, that means you are on a trajectory to always be narrowing your margins. And that's not a long-term strategy. Disclaimer, if your business strategy is to like make money now and retire in like three years, don't listen to this. But if your business strategy is to like maintain a site for like a long period of time, what you want to do is find your like differentiators. Like, why are you different than this other site that sells the same thing? Or why are you different than Amazon or your servers are probably sitting? Like, why are people going to come back? It's not price. It's something else. And as a quick example, like, you know, when Walmart went into a bunch of like small towns, everyone said like, oh, they're going to run the small businesses out of business. And they totally did for a while. But a lot of small businesses came back and those main streets now are filled with niche and kitsch. It's niche products, hobby stuff. It's homegrown fashion. It's things like that, right? It's the local people doing the local thing. Because if you want to buy potato chips, do like Walmart's right there. So I feel like as if you're not like one of the big ones, when most of us aren't, then what you want is to cultivate your customer base as if you're they're your fans. They know when they go to you, they're going to have really fun reviews where they chat with people, or they're going to have that thing right when they need it, because that's the thing that's important to them, not the price. Or it comes from that one comp that distribution center that's right next to their house. Like, you don't know what it is. That's why you have to like use data to know who your customer is. But you can't fight the pricing battle because it's a losing battle. I think what you're saying is bang on. I think if your strategy is price, it's a zero margin, zero sum game. I think you look at the airlines and at the end of the day, competing on service and experience is the difference between the LVMHs of the world and then something that's super commoditized. I think there's only a few players in the world like Walmart, Amazon, that can truly play on price because of their distribution and their economies of scale. But like you mentioned, 99% of people can't do that. So Jim, honestly, this has been really, really insightful. I love a lot of the things that we talked about today. I think your framework for architecting solutions, making sure there's an off-ramp is really, really smart. I'd never heard that before. So really appreciate your time and thanks again. Yeah, it was great. Thanks a lot. The e-commerce toolbox expert perspectives is brought to you by Noibu. 
To find out more about Noibu and how we can help you debug your e-commerce site and rocket your revenue, visit www.noibu.com. That's N-O-I-B-U.com. And then make sure to search for the e-commerce toolbox, Expert Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Noibu, thanks for listening.